In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, the Holy Spirit, in his infinite wisdom, in order to supply Christ's church with everything needful in the clearest possible way, inspired not one, but four gospel accounts. If men were to make a religion, naturally the inclination would be to write one unified account of the life and ministry of Christ our Savior. And that impulse has been seen throughout church history from the earliest days. Harmonies of the four Gospels have been written in every age, some in the early church, like Tatian's harmony. Tatian lived in the second century, and he tried to replace the four Gospels with one harmony account. Tatian's motivation, as is often the case when you are committing egregious error, was good. He thought that the harmony would serve the church in her apologetics against pagan detractors and would be useful for mission. If the contents of the four Gospels were included, what harm would be done to the Word of God if they were combined into a single account? But the church in her wisdom, guided by the Holy Spirit, clinging to what had been given by God, has always rejected any such project. The word of God is not a thing to be trifled with. And the fourfold gospel is a gift to the church from God the Holy Spirit. For the mystery of the incarnation, the salvation of God, which comes in Jesus Christ, is greater than that which could be contained in one book. Each gospel is a portrait, a picture of Christ and his work from a slightly different angle. Each recognizably depicts the same Christ. But the fourfold witness, in the fourfold witness, we get a deeper and fuller picture of our Lord and his work than could ever be accomplished by one. If I were a painter, which I am not, uh, Annalise's drawing skills have already surpassed mine, I believe. Uh, The confirmation kids can attest to that. I occasionally draw on the board. But if I were a painter and I were to take up the subject of Winston Churchill, I could either paint four pictures of him, or I could paint one, trying to capture the fullness of his character. If I were to paint four, I could have one of Churchill in uniform, with his helmet on his head and riding confidently atop a Crusader Mark I main battle tank, another of Churchill in Potsdam next to Roosevelt and Stalin, another of him at table with his wife, the Baroness Clementine and their five children, and finally a fourth of him smoking a cigar and painting his own picture of a vista. With the four, I could show Churchill the hard-nosed military man, the seasoned statesman, the enthusiastic, loving, and devoted father, and the artist. They don't contradict each other. They are all equally true of Churchill, the man, The great man in the four is fully fleshed out. Or I could paint one picture in which I would be forced to either choose one aspect of Churchill's life and put it in the foreground with everything else in the background. Perhaps I could paint him at table with a uniform, 
sitting in the background, hinting at his military service and emphasizing his role as a loving father. Or I could picture him in the battle tank with the locket open with his wife's picture, right? Emphasizing him as the military man and only a hint of him as a family man. Or I could take another option. I could try to include all the details in one painting and I would have a monstrous mess of a painting that didn't communicate anything at all. I would, would have to choose one aspect and bring it to the foreground and everything else pushed in the background. This is like the four Gospels. God the Holy Spirit uses a fourfold account of Jesus' life and ministry to give us the fullness of Christ. Each account recognizably delivers the same Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But each highlights by its themes, the parables it chooses to include, the events and miracles handed down, a different aspect of Christ's person and work. Something comes to the foreground where other things recede to the background, but because we have a fourfold gospel, nothing is lost. So when we turn to the Holy Scriptures and we want to savor the fullness of the richness of what the Holy Spirit has given us, it is helpful not only to see what is written, but also what does this gospel include specifically and what does it not? What picture of Jesus does God the Holy Spirit want to give us in Mark's gospel versus, say, the gospel of St. John? What different but complementary picture is painted? Sotation was wrong. The diversity of the four Gospels is not something that the church should hide for the sake of mission, but is a gift that should be reveled in. That God is so rich in his gifts that he tells us the story of his son four times. That Jesus' life and ministry are so rich that we need to hear it again and again. That one picture is not enough. So as we turn to today's gospel text, what particular picture of Christ, our Lord, does Mark give us as he was carried along by the Spirit of God? Jesus' first miracle is the turning of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And Mark in no way contradicts this, but he does not choose to record it. After Jesus' baptism, when his ministry begins, the first thing that Mark records is that Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. Here is the prophet whom Moses foretold, saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers it is to him you shall listen. The son of Mary, their brother, according to the flesh, had arisen to speak the word of God. And with the rising of the prophet foretold by Moses, with the epiphany of the Son of God in the synagogue in Capernaum, the hidden spiritual warfare is revealed. For in that synagogue is one that, who is not possessed by the holy and pure word of God, but is possessed instead by an unclean spirit, hidden and lurking among the people 
imagine the division and the contention, the slander and the gossip that was worked by that spirit among that congregation as he hid among them and in that man, quietly poisoning neighbor against neighbor, undermining the teaching of the word. But at the presence of Jesus, that unclean spirit was revealed and could hold his tongue no longer. That demon, as if himself possessed by something outside his control, shouted out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And we see that the demons know who Christ is and they tremble. With the true light standing before him, the unclean spirit can no longer hide in the darkness to work in his secretive way. Now you might ask, why does the unclean spirit not hold his tongue? If he knows who Jesus is, why does he not just avoid the synagogue that day and then continue along with his wicked business? And this comes to what I think is often a fundamental misunderstanding that we have about the demonic. The demons are not rational actors. They are driven inexorably by passion. They are clever, they are smart, they are powerful, but they are not rational. Satan knows full well who God is, and he rebels, which is really stupid. That is a really stupid thing to do. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which the demons lack. They are driven this way and that by their passions, wishing to dominate men, but not even being in control of themselves. He who sins is a slave to sin, the Lord Jesus says. And so we must remember that the demons and the devil are slaves. Perhaps the most exemplary example of this is the crucifixion itself. The devil knows the scriptures. He knows them well. We see this in his temptation of Christ in the wilderness. He tries to twist God's word to his own advantage. And he knows the prophecies about the Messiah full well. The first prophecy is spoken directly to him. He knows that the Messiah will be crucified, and in that crucifixion his head will be crushed. And because the devil knows this, we see that earlier in Jesus' ministry, when his head was a little more level, that the devil tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He does this through Peter, if you recall. Jesus predicts his passion, and Peter say, says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus responds, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. So the devil knows that this crucifixion will be his undoing. And yet when the time comes, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, dangling himself before the devil as bait, the devil cannot help himself. He saw the Son of God momentarily in his power, and he struck, put into the heart of Judas to betray him, and Jesus was crucified. He could not control himself. He is driven by passion and hate, which is something that the Christians ought to remember. First, that we do not fear the demonic too much. 
give them too much credit and ascribe to them a power that is not theirs. And second, as an object lesson for us. Namely, we do not want to be like the demons. We are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ knows who he is and whose business he is about. He is tempted and he does not succumb to passion, but he does the will of his Father in heaven. Even when it is tough, even when he is hungry, when he has no shelter, even when it means being crucified, he is steadfast to his calling to be the Savior of the world. He does his duty, fulfills his role, serves his divine vocation. We Christians are called to be in that image, constant, steady, and steadfast in the truth, called to be driven by the Spirit of God who dwells in our hearts, given in baptism and the Word, to be conformed to the unchanging and eternal will of God, to be shaped and grounded in the Holy Communion. We are not called to be conformed to the spirit of the age, not to live a life that is authentic to ourselves, driven by our passions and not conformed to the word of God. We are called, not called to cast aside our vocations, those callings of God which he calls us to, motherhood and fatherhood and citizenship and faithfulness in the body of Christ. We are not called to shirk our callings and find ourselves, but to heed those callings given to us by God Almighty, the God who loves us, and to be defined by them and find ourselves in him. To do otherwise is to live a life not conformed to the image of Christ, but to the demonic image. The white or black supremacist, the jihadist, driven by their passions and hatred, resentment and anger, are possessed by an unclean spirit. And whether it is a literal demon or it is their own, they are demonic and unclean, an offense to the holy God. The father who walks out on his children or the wife who leaves her husband and children behind to find herself, they are enslaved to an unclean spirit, whether it be their own or a demon. They are an offense to the holy God. The miser is enslaved to the spirit of greed, the adulterer to lust and selfishness, etc., etc., all unclean spirits, whether a demon or our own. But here is the particular gospel, the particular good news highlighted by Mark in this account. The reason Mark starts with his gospel with the casting out of the unclean spirit, is that he wishes to give us an image, the portrait of Jesus as the mighty lion of Judah, who comes bounding into the world to do battle with all the unclean spirits, the devil, the demons, and our own sinful nature, and who defeats them. There are, they are no match for him. Jesus entered the synagogue, and as if possessed, because he was a slave to his own passion, that unclean spirit cried out. He could not help himself. He was filled with anger and fear because the Son of God had entered what he thought was his own kingdom. And he shouts, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, 
the Holy One of God. And the Holy One, with his own divine voice, rebuked and commanded that unclean spirit, be silent and come out of him. And the spirit had no choice but to obey. The unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And the crowd was amazed, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. But the crowd's question is flawed. They should not ask, what is this? But they should ask, who is this? Who is this holy one who commands the unclean spirits and they obey? It is Jesus, the holy one of God who has come to break the power of the unclean spirits upon the wood of his cross, to drown them in his own blood, a torrent and a river far mightier than the Red Sea, which drowned Pharaoh and his armies, to cast out the unclean spirits and that possess us, and to possess us with his Holy Spirit given in baptism, to banish the unclean spirits in the white or black supremacists, the jihadists, the deadbeat moms and dads, with the word of his absolution, the forgiveness of those sins, because he has paid for them by his cross. He has put them away, and he gives us a new birth in the Holy Spirit, through water and word, and strengthens and fortifies us by the Holy Communion, so that the old man in us, might daily be crucified, and the new man, pure and holy, might rise on account of God's grace alone. Dearly beloved, and you are beloved, and not an offense to the holy God for Christ's sake, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, call upon him, because in him is the power of salvation. He is the conquering lion of Judah, because... Uh, he is the conquering lion of Judah. It is he who commands the unclean spirits and they obey. It is he who forgives your sins by his precious suffering and death. It is he who gives you his Holy Spirit so that you may ever be conformed to his image. In the name of Jesus, the lion of Judah who conquers the devil. Amen. May rise for the offertory.